So hi and welcome to Just a GP. Um, this is Charlotte Hespy and I have with me um, Ashley Broom and Dr Liz Sturgis. This week is the first week of a series of podcasts that we're going to be doing interviewing GPs who are doing or have done a PhD and we thought it'd be a really good opportunity to not just showcase the projects that they've done for their PhDs but to also talk about why you might like to do research and what's the joy and the benefit as GPs about doing research in general practice itself. So before I start maybe Liz you might just give a very brief um, introduction to who you are before we then what we will do is talk about um, something really good this week. Maybe you could start with who you are and something that's been good about this week. Thanks Charlotte and um, thanks Ash and Charlotte for having me. It's really lovely to be here with you. So I'm I'm a GP in Canberra um, but I've been working in an academic job for about the last seven years ever since I did an academic post uh, when I was doing my GP training. Um, and something good that's happened this week, my PhD was actually conferred two days ago. So I've got the big certificate signed by the Vice-Chancellor and that's all very exciting. Oh, wow. Congratulations, Dr. Doctor. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great feeling to hold that piece of paper. Yeah. Does that mean you have to then um, put Dr. Dr. Liz Sturgis on your door now? I don't know, Ash, I was maybe Dr. Squared, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the squared and the nerd goes together, don't they, Liz? Absolutely. I'm happy to be a nerd. I, I take that as a badge of pride. Excellent. So I'll, I'll go to you, Ash, next. What's been your um, highlight of this week? So I examined some of the final year medical students at our local clinical school. And it was just so great to see, you know, students at the final end of their journey at their second last exam. The next one was not as um, clinical based, it was more about their portfolio and just see how kind of far they've come from what I remembered them to be like a couple of years ago. It was really nice to see that transition to hearing them under exam pressure and exam settings do their thing and it was, it was really nice. Was that a dog that, or a werewolf? No, that was a dog. <laughs> I was thinking, did they hear that? Like, that was my... What was that? Did something just eat that? <laughs> just so, like it doesn't always happen but last one of the times we recorded they started um playing with each other and I had to kind of get get them out and then my dog's done he doesn't want to play anymore he's inside just sleeping but this other dog sat like going come and play with me and he just did this big yawn and that's what that's what that was okay well at that note that goes to me then, my highlight of the week. Um, I've got a few things to choose from. That's pretty lucky of me, isn't it? But I think I'll go with last night. I was really lucky to be at a meeting in my local um, region, my PHN footprint, 
where they were running a GP leadership um, session where we had um, two amazing guests coming to sort of talk to us about what does leadership mean in the primary care space and that was Wally Jamal who's a GP out in um, Western Sydney and is doing a is a passionate healthcare homes um, uh, GP and Kirsten Meisinger who's a GP from um, America where she works in an organisation called Cambridge Health and they are sort of again being leaders in the patient-centred medical home type work but they weren't so much talking about that as about leadership and it was sort of really inspiring talking about moving from a model of being what uh, we could call transactional leadership where you know you get told what to do by the leaders and everybody just does it through to um, more a concept of transformational leadership where it's about being open open to new ideas being collaborative and sort of working on things together and I think that very much goes with where I would love and aspire to be that type of leader where you actually have everybody with you and working with you and get the best out of everybody that's working with you. Is that similar? I've, there's a book called New Power that I think came up at one of our meetings. Yes, so it's, it's exactly. I think it's the, you know, it's the, the idea at the moment is about that really leadership doesn't work unless you bring culture with you and in order to create leadership with culture it is about you know constantly um, being open and uh, listening to everyone and bringing everybody along with you and you know if people don't feel part of that then you know that it's best as good for them not to be part of it because they'll hold you back anyway so um, I think and that's that concept of that book as well. So less top-down and more collaborative and engaging. Yep, that's right, and bottom-up, you know, listen to what everybody's wanting. So over to you, Liz. So you shared with us that you've just got this big piece of paper that um, says PhD. So can you maybe take us to what was your what was the goal of your PhD? So what was your project and, you know, how, what are the implications for us as GPs? Yes, yeah, thanks, uh, Charlotte. So I focused on obesity management in general practice and it really started from a clinical question. I had a patient, probably several patients actually come to me over a period of time and ask if I could help them with their weight and what I could do. And when I went to the literature, it was really interesting to see that most weight management stuff in primary care and across the healthcare system has been taken out of the, the primary care space or the general practice space and moved other places. And I, so I couldn't really answer the question of, you know, can a GP do something to help their patient? And that was our starting question. And we um, ended up doing a feasibility trial. So seeing if we could make a program work within general practice just between the GP and the patient and we just did a six-month trial and we found out that patients that wanted that model they, they liked it and it did work um, within the practices that we trialed it in. The, I guess the bigger question for when I was doing the PhD is I'm really interested in knowing more about how and why general practice works because I know we hear a lot of stuff in research and the media about times when 
GPs don't do the right thing or things that aren't working. But I know that general practice can really work for people. Like in my training, I was trained by amazing GPs in Canberra. And I want to know more about cases like that. What makes those consultations and those um, GPs do the fantastic job that they do? Mm. That's really interesting. It's something that I think a lot of us are interested in understanding what that is because there's all this talk about um, how the therapeutic relationship is one of the key drivers of, of success or one of the key reasons why patients tend to do better if they have a good therapeutic alliance with their doctor or their psychologist or whomever. And, you know, that idea of trust and what that means and continuity and we can see from Michael's research that's coming out that continuity is associated with better health outcomes and is that part of the relationship and what is it about general practice that makes it that way? I I think that's a really, really interesting clinical question, Liz. So did you, were you able to address that in the work that you did, Liz, or is that going to be your next body of work? Um, no, we did do a little bit of that. Um, and I, I agree, Ash, that, that really fascinates me as well. And I think the thing that really interests me is, like, we know it's, it's about more than just being a nice, nice doctor, because you can be the nicest, warmest, loveliest doctor, but there's something else that goes with it to make it work really well. And we found a really nice model uh, from psychology because probably the most relationship stuff between a therapist and patient or clinician patient's been done in psychology, I'd say. And they've got this really great model that, you know, takes that warmth, respect, trust aspect and puts it with um, goal setting and tasks. They call it tasks. So things you do with the patient to make the goals happen. And they've found in psychology when those three things are working together really well, that's when you get your good outcomes. Because there's a lot of literature around, you know, patient satisfaction. But just because your patient is satisfied with care doesn't necessarily mean a better health outcome. We need something more than that. And um, that was the model we explored in the PhD. And that's, we are going to do some, uh, we're doing some ongoing work with that. Um, But looking at, you know, it's more than just being a nice doctor. You've got to have the good stuff to go alongside it to make it the best patient outcomes. Can you take us a little bit further into that? So what does that sort of look like? And what does that look like when you're going to do it as a research project? And why would why do you need a research project? Yeah, so the way it looked in, in my research project was we were talking with the patients in this uh, obesity trial. And a lot of them were talking about the relationship they had with their GP. And that got us really curious and thinking about what's going on there. And I think that's that's the best thing I find about research is asking the why questions and letting your brain really think about all the amazing things and imagining and dreaming things and then you go and actually find it out. That's the best thing about research, I think. Um, and we, so we were thinking about, you know, what's going on in this relationship Then we went to the literature, so you do a literature search and look, who else is looking at these questions? What have they found out? And that's when we found the stuff in psychology. And so what we've done is looked at what they found in psychology. Does that fit with general practice? And the model is quite nice. So if you think about a a heart sink patient, um, the patient that, you know, things aren't going so well, 
you don't feel like you're making any progress, coming back to a model like this could also be really helpful. So what you think about, is it something not quite right in the trust respect aspect of what's going on here? Have we developed goals that I'm aware of, the patient's aware of, and we're both agreeing on? And do we both know what the tasks are that we're each doing to get towards those goals? And sometimes when you're having trouble working with a patient through a difficult problem um, or they're going through a difficult lifetime or whatever it is, bringing it out into those three um, parts um, can help in clinical practice as well. So I think general practice research is absolutely essential because what we do is is different to other practitioners um, and we need to learn more and more about why it is working, what we're doing um, and how we can make it even better. Thanks, Liz. It's really funny listening to you um, sort of talking about that actually takes me to why I like doing GP management plans and mental health care plans because that's actually exactly the process that I more studiously ensure that happens on a regular basis. You know, that whole thing about sitting down and saying, well, what is it that you as a patient actually want from your health care? You know, what are your goals and what do we actually need to do to do it? And you're saying, well, that actually is the associated with better health outcomes. And, you know, and it's funny because the formalising of it is something that a lot of us, you know, I hear from GPs, they just hate doing it and don't like it. But if we can see that, in fact, that if we develop that very early on, maybe in the way in which we just formalise that whole patient-doctor relationship thing, that it might actually become a little bit more fluid and easy to get why it's so important. Yeah, I agree. I think the the more you know your patients and the more you use those those tools in terms of paperwork or plans to develop that over time and and keep revisiting them it can be really powerful the and what was really interesting to me when liz was talking was this um concept of mutuality in both of those three concepts you know she talked about the relationship between being trust and respect between the both parties so trust from the doctor's perspective and respect of the patient from the doctor's perspective as well as the patient for the doctor and then tasks that were to be completed completed not just by the patient but also by the doctor and then agreed goals you know coming it's not just goals set down by by the doctor to the patient or vice versa it's not the patient setting you know the agenda of what they you know you must do this for me type approach it's that concept of mutually agreed relationship tasks and goals and I think that's innately and intuitively sounds like a really good relationship and a really good space to work from. Yeah well it's true patient-centered care isn't it and and that you know is you always sort of hear it when people say you know you feel listened to and understood and that's where I think this this model comes from doesn't it Liz? Yeah that's absolutely right um, it, and it definitely is the two-way street the interesting thing Ash is um, so in psychology um, they have a survey that the psychologist does and the survey that the patient does and they they get a number and that they found that that the strength of those numbers reflects patient outcomes in psychology in our early work um, on this measure in the, in our obesity setting, the patient's view of that um, alliance was 
was related to their outcomes, but not necessarily the doctors, which was really interesting. So I don't know if um, we're not as good at um, scoring ourselves and the relationships, are we too harsh on ourselves, something like that. But that's definitely an area we want to explore a bit more. But at the moment, it looks like the patient's view of what's happening um, might be more important than the GPs. But I totally agree with you that when you're working with a patient, we all know when it's going really well, it really is a two-way street in that alliance and and um, both your respect for the patient, their respect for you, and it's all going really well together. I totally see where you're coming from there. Liz, can I ask, I'm fascinated by the, the GPs not being as good at predicting that as the patients are in that, you know, I mean, it's fantastic that the patient's, you know, score is, is so predictive. So is it that we don't think that they're on side with it? And is that because we're generally pessimistic about how successful we can be with obesity management? Or is it the other way around that we're more optimistic? Or is there no particular correlation between optimistic or pessimistic? It's definitely an early finding, um, but it was um, the score itself, so not necessarily even related to obesity, but the, the GP scoring how they felt that alliance was going. I mean, my gut feeling is that we're probably a bit more pessimistic about um, how things go generally. But then I guess the other side of the coin is that, I mean, we know as clinicians how a, how a patient views how things are going is, is more important for their outcomes. Um, in a way, we're hoping it's going to be kind of handy in a way because when you measure this, if we can just measure what the patient thinks is going on, and then we know that that's related to outcomes. It's going to make studying it a whole lot easier than collecting um, surveys from everybody. But it's definitely early stages, and that's the next um, stage of exploration, which is really exciting. You mean the next stage of exploration is looking at the doctor's ratings and, and exploring that side of things or um, looking more into the patient assessments and, and the outcomes from, from that side of things? So the, the next step we've, we've done, we've looked at um, 150 patients and doctors um, and that how the, both of them have scored it. We've looked into the patient side a little bit more and we found that the patient side um, lined up really nicely when we're trying to measure that alliance um, with other, other good measures like shared decision-making um, and a depth of relationship scale. So there's other, we're finding that this measure actually mirrors a whole lot of other measures that we know are really good. So we're hoping that maybe instead of having to do like five surveys on a patient to work out if things are going well from their point of view, we can do this much shorter 12-item survey um, and have a really strong measure of the alliance. Um, so that that's the current step. Um, I often feel like academic work sort of moves at the pace of a glacier. I'm sure Charlotte will agree and you look back on what you've done over a few years and you're like, wow, we're like a tiny little step further on the journey. Um, so, you know, really I, could, I feel like I can work on this question for a lot more years to come. But it's it, this is just the key to a whole lot of stuff. I mean, at the moment we're very much looking at the whole idea of patient-centred care and how do we measure it and what does it look like. And this sounds like a fabulous um, way that's actually useful for the GPs in designing their care and getting feedback and how they can improve too in even sort of having a reflective um, review on 
oh, okay, I didn't think that that was going so well, but they're actually engaged. So I, I need to get that. Because um, it's really interesting. One of the um, things that we do at our practice is we sit, we have a clinical supervision type session or a balance it's modelled a bit on Balint where once a week we actually present two cases and it's all about the the doctor-patient relationship rather than the medical side of things. And so I've been doing that since I was a GP registrar once a week. And to me, the um, I've just learnt so much through that about being able to read, engage. Why is it that a patient that I don't think I engage with at all keeps coming back to me? And what is it about that when they do actually, you know, seem to get better and do well, yet I'm, you know, I'm sitting there going, this just doesn't feel like a really um, ongoing great relationship. But being able to start to get why it is that's going on and where the patient's coming from and that sort of patient. and yeah, So this is sort of, I think, a nice little tool that might help with that. I agree, Charlotte. And you're thinking streams were similar to mine. The first thought when Liz was talking about a, a measure that we could use for patients that correlates with good outcomes would be an excellent measure to use when we're talking about how do we assess quality in general practice. And there's the second thought I had, which is I want, you know, it wouldn't it be interesting to delve in and see what it is about the doctor and how they're perceiving the consultation that that makes them rated a little bit differently. And I and I wonder whether that's because, as you say, we're a little bit more pessimistic about our own skills or we don't quite understand, you know, what it is that we're giving them that they really enjoy. And, and perhaps that's because we're doing it innately or as part of our training or it's it's part of our personal characteristics and and, you know, it's this kind of very complex web of, of what's going on there and groups like having supervision or bar and to really useful at teasing that out. I agree we do it um, as part of some of the mental health work I do. We do it fortnightly and you get so many insights into yourself as a practitioner and, and how that may relate to to patients and and why you may see it as difficult but but they you know they they see you as someone that they can work with and, and, and move forward with. Yeah, because in our clinical supervision session, um, the external person who comes into our practice is a, psycho, a psychotherapist. And so it's really interesting. So she comes with, you know, a particular frame and model of thinking about things. But it's just so useful when you've got someone who isn't seeing the patient at all, giving you this sort of um, input about, what might be going on or the underlying agendas and um, just amazingly helpful. And just that whole thing about, you know, sorry, that's my dog. Okay, so they stopped again. So the, the, the joy for that is just being able to understand that sometimes doing nothing and just being there is inordinately powerful, which the patient takes away. And you might go I don't know that I did anything I mean I know that that's what medical students sometimes say to me and they go I just didn't realize there was so much power in saying nothing and you know that I think goes again to the core of this tool maybe Liz in some way as well yeah I think you guys have summarized it really well and that that fact that often we don't 
really understand the power of what is going on. And because we don't have a, you know, as good an understanding as I think we could get to, that means it's harder to improve our practice and also train people in a way that we know is going to be most effective. Um, so I think um, the other really exciting thing about having a tool um, that gives us a number, um, you know, we don't get as in-depth information from a number, but it means then we can compare it. So we can p- compare the same patient over time. We can compare different patients over time. Um, and really exciting, we've got um, some colleagues in Belgium who are now translating it into um, Dutch where they are locally and they're going to trial it where they are. So imagine if we could, you know, compare things across international healthcare systems as well on a measure that we know actually reflects really good practice. Well, that sounds really interesting. I'm going to obviously have to keep my ear over in your scene and find out as you, the more and more emerges. It sounds great. Thanks for that. No worries. I'm, I'm presenting a little bit on it on GP18. So if anyone's keen, I'll see you there. We'll definitely be there. Sounds good. So is there anything else you'd like to sort of share about your research or anything, um, again, about the sharing the joy of why you like to do this and why others might like to join you in being a researcher? Oh, Charlotte, where to start? It, I honestly love my job. It's the best thing so being both a clinician and a researcher gives you this a great look into really different worlds so when I'm in my academic world um, I guess you know people talk differently do different things think differently and when in clinic same again and both of those worlds really make each other even more rich and you um, I think being a clinician and bringing that to research means that you ask really different questions and you have different ways of thinking about research Um, and I think it's great to have GPs involved in research. Uh, I think unless you sit in the chair and and do it, there's a level of understanding that you never can have perhaps Um, but also that trust with your colleagues and and peers around the kind of research you're going to do um, and how you're going to portray things, how things are because you, you, you have that different level of understanding um, so I, I wouldn't do anything else in the world at this point. Um, I, I guess at the, this end of the PhD, I'm really glad to have done it. It was a heap of work. I remember um, my supervisor, Kirsty Douglas, said, oh, you know, you may as well do it. It won't be that much more work. Uh, not, not entirely true, um, but I absolutely thank her for supporting me and pushing me to do it because it, it really does open up different opportunities and different doors that um, wouldn't have been opened if I, if I hadn't pursued the PhD. I did research as part of my degree, but it was very short. And I'd be interested to hear from Liz how somebody who hasn't done an academic post or isn't affiliated with a university but is keen on getting into research, um, how they could go about that and and how she might give a bit of a summary on on how that would impact their clinical practice and how to work it into their clinical practice. That's a great question, Ash, and I I think you're absolutely right. Um, There's a really fantastic program actually going on in the UK at the moment with the RCGP. Um, Professor Joanne Reeves is looking at how can every GP be a scholar and what she means by that is in your clinical day, the questions that you come up with, 
Um, how can you improve the quality of practice in your own um, general practice? Um, how can you interact with uh, researchers? How can we get the whole um, scholarship of general practice really up and running? Um, and I think every GP every day will have questions that make them curious, make them wonder, make them ask, I wonder why that is or how that's happening. Um, so locally, I think um, good, or I, I mean, I get contacted by GPs locally um, wanting to work out how they could do a certain research question, research project. So your local academics, even though we might not always seem the most friendly people, we are pretty friendly, which is most of us are pretty shy at first. Not me, I'm not shy, but lots of people are shy. So, but don't be afraid to send people an email, um, say, you know, I'm interested in this area. Is there any way I could um, work with you or ideas that you've got? Most academics will be really happy to engage with you. The primary health networks also have um, people who are involved in quality improvement. So if it's a quality improvement sort of um, question that could, could guide you through that in your own practice. Um, and then I think our registrars, training our registrars, they're always good people to talk to um, about research because a lot of the medical schools do have um, research components now and they might be able to um, share their skills with you. So I don't know, does that help at all? Ash, what do you reckon? Yeah, I think that's a good start. You know, sometimes there's this barrier between, okay, well, if I want to get into a bit of research, does that mean I have to give up, you know, two to three days of work to go and do it and how will that affect me? So I think those little um, toes in the water of getting in touch with the academic GPs around you or in touch with the PHN and, and starting to ask questions and even looking at how not necessarily doing a trial or a research project but how you can utilise data or um, literature reviews to enhance your clinical practice would be, you know, a really good beginning. Totally agree, Ash. And I mean, I mean, I've gone completely in the deep end and gone the whole hog and I hope I'll keep having an academic career. So at the moment I, I work one and a half days clinically. Um, so most of my week is in, in, an, in the academic world. But GPs who are doing mostly uh, clinical practice have a huge role to play in general practice research. And I think um, more bridges between all the different worlds in general practice can only make that stronger. Yeah, I 100% agree with that, Liz. I mean, from my perspective, I've, you know, gone into sort of more active research in later clinical life. And there's no doubt that part of the, the, the skill that I bring into academia is by the fact that I'm not actually really an academic. I'm actually a clinician. And so the way in which I approach things and look at things is, is it a different framework. But from the general practice perspective, that's a really helpful thing. Completely agree, Charlotte. And that's been more and more recognised. So all the big funding bodies in Australian research, so the MRFF and NH and MRC, are more and more recognising that we haven't supported clinician researchers enough across Australia. And they're looking at different ways of, of doing that because of the different types of questions and the different approaches that clinician researchers bring. Yeah, and that whole implementation thing, you know, um, my big beef about research is, you know, it's all and well to do it in an ivory tower or a hospital clinic where the patient that you're looking at has only got one single disease um, and is protected from everything and, you know, a researcher does all of the intervention. 
But once you actually get into the real world where people are messy, they don't just have one disease, they're on multiple other things and all the rest of the world is all around you and you're a clinician who's trying to get through a busy day, it's a quite, it's a very different thing. And so we really do need to do a whole lot of research that is in the real world rather than in the ivory tower. Yes, and that is reflective of, of general practice and um, helps to guide and support general practice and enhance general practice as a specialty rather than um, the opposite. I think that's really important. Which brings me to my last question for Liz before I have no more questions, and that is um, can you tell us about your convocation item, Liz? Oh, yes. Good point, Ash. Um, so uh, Dr Joanne Mansky-Nankervis, who's a fantastic um, mid-career researcher at the University of Melbourne, um, has put forward a convocation item um, looking at can the college look at an implementation strategy for research. Um, we do have an expert committee on research in the college, um, but this convocation is, item is asking for that conversation to happen at the top levels of the college and so everyone's involved um, right up looking at how we're going to support GP academics that are doing this really intensive uh, research work around general practice right through to that how can GPs in their clinic um, be more engaged with research quality improvement so as a whole college um, we can see why general practice research is important uh, for supporting what we do and improving what we do. So that's really exciting. So Joanne will be speaking to that at GP18 um, and I think people can still, I think you can still vote on Share GP at the moment. Yeah, I think voting is open for a while and it closes just before the AGM so they can collate it all. And interestingly, I realised last year, even if you vote one way on Share GP and you decide to change your vote and at the AGM if you're in attendance because they have little clicker things that, um, are linked to your name and, and RACGP number, it won't mean that you vote twice and it won't mean that you can you can actually change your vote, which is really useful. That is very tech savvy. I'm impressed. It is and, and very useful as well. So thanks for Ash, that, Ash. So it's worth going on, having an opinion, and but if you can still come, then do come and you can change your mind. Which also then is a good reminder, Ash and Liz, that um, the AGM papers have come out too. So if you are a, um, interested in the college, which hopefully everyone is, then it's the time to open up that um, dreaded email that says the AGM papers have arrived and have a look. And this is particularly because there are some uh, changes that we're hoping to have the members accept for the constitution. Um, and so, and very happy to take questions at any point from anybody if they're interested. I'll go and open the email now, Charlotte. I had been ignoring it. How did you know? Because that's what we all do about AGM notices. <laughs> so that does bring us to the tip of the week, Ash. So maybe you'd like to start. What's your tip of the week? So... Um... Mine's actually going to be non-clinical and based around what you just said, I've completely changed my mind about what I was going to talk about. But um, I happened to sit next to a, um, a guy who works in IT on a plane and he noticed that I used Gmail and suggested that I try Inbox by Gmail. 
and it's changed my life since I've had it because it's allowed me to organise things in a way that I hadn't been able to organise them before. What I used to do when emails came in that I needed to action was just leave them as unread emails and then, you know, there was one point this year where I had 70 unread emails and I sat down and got through all of them. But as you get busy and more things come in, you know, little articles that I'd want to read or things that I'd want to do would just be sitting as this unread email and I'd look at it going, I have no idea why. I've made this an unread email. This is a really poor way of doing things. And inbox by Gmail, so I'm not sure if we're allowed to brand things, but I guess we can do whatever we want. Um, You can open an email and then you can click like a little tag and then you can write a reminder for yourself and then you can snooze an email until a later date as well. So you can tag something and write why you've tagged the email and then you can snooze it until a time of the week when you know you're going to be able to address it. So Fridays is my day where I do all that sort of stuff. So I often snooze emails and I need to action all things that I need to read until the times that I know that I'm going to be able to do that. And then I don't have this overwhelming unreadness, you know, in my inbox and then things I can see exactly in the snoozed area why I've snoozed the email and I can then task task prioritise a lot easier. It's been really cool. Ash, I'm more worried about why the guy was reading your email over your shoulder in the plane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, because we were exchanging emails. So, okay. It was yeah. all right. It was all, it was all fine. Yeah. It was not like a hey. weird tap over the back of the seat. Yeah. Hey, hey, little lady. I've got a good <laughs> recommendation for you. So, Liz. Okay, I'll sleep better now. Ash, well, now it's your turn, Liz. What? what? Okay. I'm going to go clinical. Um, It was um, national or perhaps even international overdose awareness day in the last few weeks-ish and I would like to broadcast that GPs we can um, (coughs) give people scripts for naloxone, so the uh, opioid overdose reverser and for patients that are on really high doses of opioids, we hope there aren't many, um, but if they're changing their doses and that sort of thing, it's a good thing to have around the house. Um, and also for people who um, use um, opioids or uh, street heroin. Um, And some local um, organisations do train uh, patients and peer groups on how to use naloxone, but it's extremely safe. Um, You just give it IM. um, You can give repeated doses and call the ambulance. Um, So it has saved people's lives in the community and uh, communities that have naloxone readily available have much lower rates of opioid overdose. So get on the prescription, everyone. Cool. Thanks, Liz. So mine is also clinical um, and it's come out of uh, this week's journal club in my practice where we were talking about um, the sort of steroid and non-steroid approaches to eczema and we actually talked about the fingertip unit dosing of steroid creams, which... I've never used and if you go to the AMH so that's the Australian Medicine Handbook it's got a really nice table in there so you just go in there and look for the fingertip unit but it basically shows you how to dose steroid creams using a fingertip and the the general rule of hand is that one fingertip does about one hand's worth of um, of skin or whatever but there's a little bit more technical table in the AMH so that's That's my tip for the week. 
Thanks, Charlotte. I've um, been aware of the fingertip unit, but I haven't seen this table and I've always been confused as to which fingertip you use. Like, is it the little finger, the middle finger, the thumb, the... Does it have guidance about that at all? It does have guidance and it's the t it's actually the tip of an adult index finger to the first crease. So it's from the tip to the crease. So it's your whole first digit. Excellent. Thank you. I love your attention to detail, Ash. You, you should get into research for sure. <laughs> but have you seen some? Like my husband's got really big hands. So his fingertip, <laughs> jump the index fingertip is very different from mine. So, yeah, I... Um, it has been a problem that's perplexed me for a while. <laughs> so that basically draws to a close um, this week's podcast. And I'd really, again, like to thank you, Liz, for coming and um, being interrogated. I've learnt a lot from you um, sharing your story. And I'm really looking forward to seeing a little bit more about this um, patient tool that we'll be able to use down the track um, to help us understand our relationships and the power of improving their health in general practice. Thanks so much for inviting me on, guys. It's been a heap of fun. Mm. So go and enjoy your week, everybody. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks.